food better be good KYT? I just walked for 50 minutes up the mountain to get to this place. Did you actually? Yeah. <laughs> it's literally up the mountain. And like part of it is just through like the Google Maps is like, take this parking lot. I'm like, what? What's going on? And it's like, there's a tunnel that's just blocked off. So I have to walk through the woods to get back on the course. It's just the sketchiest route ever. But there's literally, you know, because normally if you, t- if you go by bus, you, you go sideways and then up. Right. But then here I could just like cut through. So it's as fast to walk basically as to take the bus. But it's all the way up the mountain, so. You, you told me to come here, you said this is your favorite place. No, no, it's not my favorite place. What I told you was like, it's a place my mom and my and my mother-in-law, are probably in their top two, three Vietnamese places, and I, I figured we have to stay on brand with the ta- the reason we're called a table for two, not just for pictures of us eating food and food, but maybe to give some people some insight because it, it made me think of uh, Magic Fest Calgary, where I was staying at Jay's, and then we went to eat Vietnamese, and he had no idea what to do. Well, they went. They took me to their favorite Vietnamese place, but they had told me that they usually go to their go-to. They're not very, um, what's that word? Adventurous. Adventurous with with uh, with their meal. They they didn't want to try. It. I'm like, and they never tried the soup before. Wow. Uh, and uh, this place is called Folian. Um, Vietnamese restaurant, typical thing, and the usual go-to for me at these places is the Tonkinese soup. And so I'm surprised I never got it. Um, namely, the safe choice is usually something called uh, I, 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 don't, I can't pronounce Vietnamese, but D A C B I E T Dak Biet, I would say, and it's usually the first choice on the on the Tonkinese soup, and it's the one with everything. Like this one has rare beef, well-done flank brisket, soft tendon, and tripes, but for the least adventurous, I'd, I'd probably just go with like something like the beef number fourteen here, the beef ball Tonkini soup. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm gonna get. I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of tripe in general. Right. Um, tendon, I could take it or leave it. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the other stuff's good. I mean, if you if you're not that adventurous, you could always just get one of the the like they do really nice grills, right, with vermicelli right. or rice or something. Yeah, that's probably what they get. But yeah, like I'm looking at maybe just getting some. Uh, some rare beef and brisket or something, you know, Thai gao. Yeah, it's one, it's one of their specialties too, like a lot of their grilled uh, meat stuff. But uh, if, if you want, for me, like... Yeah, you yeah. have to get the soup. You tr- you have safe, to try safe, the play. safe And you need, you need sriracha sauce. That's all, that's all about the sauce. The, I know some people like, uh, what's the sauce called again? Um, Soya? No. No, no, no. It's... Um, Right. It, I know what Paul, Paulo discovered and he loves it. I'll take uh, number one extra large. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I have number four just regular large, please? Thank you. Um, I, I used to pronounce it because it's spelled Hoisin? Pho. Is it Hoisin? Yeah, yeah. That's the name C- of the seafood sauce. Um, I used to pronounce it uh, pho because it's like yeah, that's spelled. how I pronounce it too. But it's not, but right? my, my wife like always it's like tries pho, to, right? yeah, yeah, or whatever. Well, not whatever. <laughs> my bad. You, sh- you, sh- you should know how to pronounce it, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But yeah, it's um, but I think I think when we try non-Asian cuisine, that's where I would I would want to know what the best play is. Let's let's say it's okay, uh, you go in, to Indian place. It's it's spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> but what about like an Indian place? That, that is Asian cuisine. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, my bad. <laughs> um, Are you unfamiliar with the continental lines? <laughs> that those places or. Um, 
I, if, if you ever go into a Romanian restaurant, I can I can tell you what the play is because uh, that's my. I was visiting my uh, grandfather this past weekend for, for his 90th birthday. 90, imagine. Wow. Uh, 20 years ago, he was seven times my age. 10 years ago, he was four times my age, and now he's only three times my age. So it's we're we're getting closer. We're getting closer, but. Uh, He's, he's in great shape, and so my mom's side of the family is from Romania, and so I've, I I didn't don't know how to speak Romanian, but I do know how to eat delicious Romanian food. I've been I've been training that. And Are so, there Romanian restaurants here in Montreal? There's some, yeah. Okay. There's, some. there's actually a pretty big community here. Okay, definitely on a future uh, table for two. Got to we'll see if you see if you like it. So with with the soup, they they usually come with um, they're gonna serve you with like a plate of herbs and. Uh, Lemon, right? a lime, and uh, my wife. I don't necessarily always put lime, but my my wife and, and her family loves to sque- squeeze the, the lime into the soup, give it that zesty flavor. Oh, I, I love doing that too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I like it all. I'm not a huge fan of the hoisin sauce, but I love the sriracha. Yeah. I'm, I, I the spice must flow. <laughs> um, twice cooked pork or whatever. <laughs> that was too much for me. It was too much for you, yeah. When we ordered it, she just gave, stared me dead in the eyes, like, this is very spicy, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And, and then comes there, you're like, I'm tapping out. Yeah. I'm tapping out. Well, most of the time people say that, we can manage. It's like, what? Yeah. But no, the, there was actually yeah, spicy. Yeah, I think that was for real. And uh, so here, we have, when you get this plate of stuff, you're supposed to dump as much as you want in the soup while it's hot so that it, yeah, it so starts it cooking. Yeah, it right in the, in the broth. Right, and, and you're supposed to submerge the, the beet, if you got rare beef, submerge it so it's cooking it um, once you get your soup. So, said about that. Um, let's see, what, what can we talk about while we wait for the food? Well, let's talk about uh, your weekend. Let's see what well, we're... I went to play GP Providence with uh, my buddies KYT and uh, KYT, no, with Tom Martell and Mike Sigris. And uh, the goal was to qualify Tom for the Mythic Championship in Barcelona, but we did not achieve that goal. In fact, we did not make set the second day of competition. It was kind of rough. We started five and one, and you need to go six and two to, to make. I'm feeling two. good. I'm feeling good. With so we're feeling decks? pretty good. No, our decks were bad. Okay. The pool was really bad. I, I would just say that Siggy had a deck that was like seven out of ten. Uh, maybe 6.5 out of 10. Tom had like a 4.55 out of 10. And I had like a 2.53 out of 10. And uh, like, they basically they're like, here, Alex, these are the leftovers. We have no idea what to do with these cards. Make a deck. You do what you want. And like, your sideboard's going to be good because you're getting all the sideboard cards and you can play all the colors. So I was like, green, white, splash, blue, and double black, you know, the type of nonsense. And like, <laughs> I managed to win a reasonable number of games, but. In the second to last round, our, our opposing our team uh, they, they fought hard and they managed to get a draw, uh, in, you know, in time, and so then we had a, a loss and a draw. And in the last round, uh, in a few turns into the game, I realized that I just I just drawn an Enforcer Griffin, but I already had one in play and I only played one in my main deck, Ooh. so I called judging myself. So normally with deck red jars like that, they just swap it for the card it's supposed to be when you when you call it on yourself. However, here, since I'd already cast one, there's no way to tell which one was the original one and which is the oh. one I added. So the game state's already irrevocably chained, damaged. So I got a game loss. And this is our win in for day two, so I'm feeling horrible. But I managed to win the next two games. But then both my teammates lost. Siggy for the first time of the day. And so we didn't make day two. But the top 50 teams cashed. So we actually made 250 US dollars for our trouble. So to go back on that really quick, so that would only... 
really happened in Seal, I guess, that scenario, right? You're saying that when they swap it for the card it's supposed to be? It could happen in Constructed, too. If Let's say you have two copies of the Elder Spell main. And... Thank you. You have two copies of the Elder Spell main and one in the sideboard. And let's say you've cast two of them, or even one of them, and then you draw two more. The, the game's damage okay. beyond repair, right? Right, right, okay. But I was surprised. I was surprised it's not there's a there's a percentage of the time where you're not you're not just penalized with a game loss. Yeah, like most of the time you don't get penalized with a game loss, right? Actually, the way but it's only when it's like um, additional copies of card you already have. If you draw one of that you don't have, or a card that's only a sideboard card, then as soon as you draw it, you can just get it replaced, right? Okay. The problem is that. It was when I I'd drawn the first copy and that's normal, right? right? I have one in my deck, but then I drew the second copy. And it's like, uh oh, something's wrong. I call the judge. And there's no real fix. All right, we're gonna get to Eaton and we'll we'll okay. finish this after. Kiliki, have you heard of the term bang bang before? It's when you have a meal after another meal. I've never. Okay, the my my first time using the word bang bang this way is uh, it's a very popular poker podcast by a guy named Joey Ingram and, and he popularized it by you know bang bang as shots fired uh, okay and so when you when you told me what your your meaning of bang bang was it's like totally different so why why is this coming up right now well I somehow convinced KYT after we had a, a bowl of delicious pho we were walking along and I'm like whoa look it's like del- he's like delicious dumplings made hand hand handmade they have on a site. Poster. Yeah, they have a he's poster. like we have to go there next time. I'm like next time. Why not right now? And he's like okay, fine. <laughs> so now we're we're gonna be participating in this bang bang, <laughs> eating a meal right after a meal. <laughs> that was a very reluctant <laughs> reluctant bite. Yeah, well, you even went in and got bubble tea somewhere else. You got some a mango smoothie or something. That's our usual thing. That's our usual thing, though. Um, well, I was like we normally have coffee, you know. Wow. We, oh, we, we, we not only get dumplings, we got... We got some fr- appetizer sauce thing. Yeah, fried chips of some sort. Yeah. So, so let's finish... Uh, maybe there's this opportunity while we're waiting for our dumplings to finish uh, talking about your tournament. When when you tweeted out something that, that grabbed some attention. You said that like even though you didn't make day two, you, you guys cashed. Yeah. The top 50 teams cashed, but only the top 45 teams made day two. So five teams made money without making day two. So what should people feel about that? Should they feel you know, happy? Or like obviously it's fortunate for you. But well, like, it's weird because I used to play GPs and I would day two and I'd have like what I would thought would be a good record at the end. Even team GPs would go 10-4 and we wouldn't cash. Right. And this time we cashed with five three five two one or whatever and it's like you feel it feels weird certainly our team would have rather been in day two than had cash like the reason we came there wasn't to make 250 dollars is to play magic with our friends you know so it was kind of weird and it didn't really like take away the the feel bads of not having made day two but i'm not going to turn down some money you know so like was there a comment that people said like that it makes you feel that Magic Fests are, are like the GPs are good value or they might be now I mean the, the number of people playing has, has decreased I don't think they're as overvalued let's say as they maybe were before like GP Province had 250 teams the 750 people 
that's not an enormous size tournament. It's it's a big tournament, but it's not enormous. Where you know there was a world where GPs under fifteen hundred people were unheard of, kind of in, in some period of time. And now you know GPs over twelve hundred are relatively rare, and they've increased the payouts over time to a, a little bit at least. So yeah, I think I think if you're trying to qualify for a Mythic Championship, I think GP is a pretty good way to go about it because even if you fail, you get some money, and and they're a good place to like hone your skills, you know. So so the main factor is the reduced field size, you're saying? I think so, yeah. And and a lot of the people who are gone are often the people who were maybe the best. Like Top the, tier, yeah. You know, the MPL aren't really playing anymore. Um, some of the gold platinums have kind of lost their incentive to go and play. People who cared about pro points, basically, aren't playing as much. And that was like maybe 200-ish people, but they were some of the, the top in the field. So not only are the fields smaller, but they're maybe a little softer. Man, I'd be interested. I remember uh, when I had a conversation with you a while back when Frank Carson wrote like an article calculated, I think, the EV of a, of a GP based on your projected win percentage. And, and we calculated for you, like even with travel expenses, it was worth for you to go. I think all of them was the conclusion. I'm not sure. Well, not all of them, but, but most of them, yeah. Most of, in North America, I guess. <laughs> and that's valuing my time at zero. Right, right. But yeah, my, my EV attending a GP was somewhere in the six $700 range. Yeah, so... I, I, yeah, I'm curious, based on projected field size, uh, what the EV will look like now. That, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the I think the payout's also gotten flatter. So, like, used to be first place at a GP was $10,000. Even a team GP was 5000 I think. This one was 3000 for first place per person. Uh, so that's a decrease from where it was before, and I think that's one of the reasons it pays deeper into the event, because people were complaining that they would get these good records and not not get any money. Well, now it's maybe gone too far the other direction. Hard to say. Hmm. But TGPs are as fun as ever. If you ever have a chance to go and attend one with a couple of your friends, you know, I know actually you have a fifth place at a team grand prix. It's your, kind of your claim to fame, you know. <laughs> claim to fame. I think I think I still value. Uh, man, I don't know how I got my other top sixteen, but I still value the one in Vancouver, just because it was in Vancouver, just because you won it. Won it. Oh, John, Stern, John Stern was in top eight. Um, top four, actually. Top four. Yeah. Losing to you in top four. Yeah, I, I remember. So I, I value that a lot. And top five, Providence under. You know, it was it was like one of the very first team or if not the first because that's when they decided to it change the rules it wasn't the first but it was relatively early days yeah that's when they decided to change the rules for day two realizing that it didn't well not that it didn't make sense but it was not that great to face the same team twice and, and not be able to move um up and down the rankings. Uh, were you at that GP? Oh yeah, yeah I was. So. Yeah, I teamed up with uh, John Stern and David Kaplan. Actually, it was uh, RTR block. I remember. So it was a little weird. Um, yeah, day two was draft, and you would just draft against a team, and then you would play that team t- two rounds, which is kind of bizarre with different different pairings. And then after like I think it was three of these drafts, or maybe or something, and then it would cut to top four. They, they changed the system over. The previous one was just cut to top two. I remember. In the first one they had was in, uh, it was in San Jose. Yeah, so for, for my team, even though I had a great record, it was hard to uh, advance beyond the other teams that were also doing great, that were also 2-0-ing their opponents. 
Sick, great record brags. <laughs> but yeah, Team GPs are a lot of fun, and I don't, I haven't seen if there's any other ones on the schedule, but I might, those are ones I might attend, and I'm planning to attend Grand Prix Montreal, because I can walk there without having to go over the mountain. <laughs> All right, let's let's uh, let's see what we can talk about here. Oh, sh oh we should give a shout out though for at that GP to Superintendent Dollywall. Yeah, for his uh, second top eight, right? A, a strong finish. Yeah, he's qualified. Obviously, humble brags has been able to qualify for uh, the same MC three different ways. Three different ways. Wow. Because he had one, the MCQ at uh, GP at, at Magic Fest Calgary. Yeah, oh, one by that one Friday, that. and That's then he follows it up with two GP top eights, right? Yeah, someone, someone definitely to watch out for. So <laughs> he's on my list of high risers. Yeah, definitely. Best of luck to Private Inspector Dolly Wall <laughs> in, in his future endeavors. <laughs> let's uh, let's go. Uh, I don't know. So what you want to get onto some serious topics instead of all this high uh, level, high level, strategy. high level. Ooh, I don't know. My brain's kind of feeling a bit foggy. I need I need some more dumplings. <laughs> So I gave KYT about maybe a third to half of the amount of walk that I took to get here, and he's like, Alex, I need to take a break. I need to take a break. Too much food. <laughs> so now we're just chilling at this uh, random park that we found on the way. There's young children nearby, some people playing tennis, uh, a couple swings. Yeah. Kind of, kind of, you know, the, it's pretty windy. We actually saw, went up and saw St. Joseph's Oratory, which I don't think either of us has ever seen before, despite living in Montreal basically our whole lives, right? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I just want to say uh, before we continue that I had to cut part of the last bit. It was starting to get loud in the Chinese restaurant, um, loud Asian cooks just yelling at each other. So, uh, I'm gonna what, cut what, that. what were they saying? <laughs> Any obscenities? No, I, I don't know. They, they were speaking Mandarin, so... So, yeah, we had to protect we'll the young Mandarin there. children, so... <laughs> Alright, but, yeah, uh, back to what you said, uh, it's it's how I feel about just when, when people tell us all the time that Montreal is such a touristic destination, and I just don't feel it because... Yeah, I don't feel it either. I think here. I feel Montreal is, like, a cool place to live. There's, you know, there's good restaurants, and they're pretty cheap, and it's the transit's good, and there's, like, a lot of young people... And universities and nightlife and stuff, but I don't really see it as like a place to go and do touristy stuff. But that's partly from my perspective as someone who lives here, right? That being a tourist in your own city is a weird experience. And it's sometimes fun to go and do, though, right? Yeah, you, you were telling me that you saw the oratory while you were in Rome, a picture of it, right? Yeah, I was in Rome and I just, I, I was actually staying at like a, a convent basically where they had a couple of rooms for rent and like just on the wall, the breakfast room there, where the nuns would have breakfast, there's a picture of St. Joseph Oratory, which is, you know, a place in Montreal that I've basically never been, and, you know, it's famous enough to be in in Rome, like, this is Rome, it's one of the the biggest tourist attractions in the world, it's so many incredible buildings, right, the Vatican's, like, right yeah. there, you know, there's obviously the Colosseum, there's all sorts of stuff, and they have a picture of our hometown thing that I've never visited, because, you know, it's a 30-minute walk from where I live, <laughs> so... <laughs> Just like, you know, when people come here and like, oh, what do I see? Well, like, I just, I, you know, what, what restaurants are incredible? Yeah. You just go to the restaurants that are located close to you, right, that are good. You don't necessarily go to the best places in the city because you go to places based on convenience. You're living, like, a more normal life, not a condensed, like, intense one-week experience or whatever where you have to just see the things 
And it shows you how when you go to visit somewhere, you're not actually seeing what the locals experience life there as, right? You're also getting that kind of condensed experience. When I go to London, I walk around, I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. And like, oh, okay, this food is not bad. And the locals are just like, wow, my rent is infinite money. And then I have to spend infinite time going to where I work and <laughs> infinite money buying, buying food or whatever. And, you know, that's maybe more closer to their experience. The fact that there's like all these cool old buildings just becomes part of the background for them. So it's always a matter of perspective, you know, just like we in the winter, we love to go and visit these extremely hot countries. Like you go, you go to you go to like Mexico, hang out on a beach, Costa Rica. <laughs> but like a lot of these places, people are often saving up money so they can come and move here for the better opportunities we often have, like jobs that pay more money. And so it's. It's pretty interesting to just really see how where you live and where you're born shapes your worldview and your perspective on things. And that's why I think it's pretty valuable when you're on a magic testing team to have people from all over the world because mm. different people have really different perspectives on things. There's been studies that show that in like work environments that having a variety of of people are going to look at things in different ways. If you have, you know, 10 white western men examining a problem they're all going to have similar backgrounds so similar processes in some ways of, of solving problems they're going to only see it from their perspective but if you have someone you know like a, a woman from Africa for example she might see it in a different way and find the solution that nobody else saw hmm well, I like that nice nice call back to, to magic um, what well yeah when people do ask you what, what where to go and which restaurants to go to like I feel okay, I'll start first I feel my restaurants are restaurants my, my recommendations are pretty boring and I, i'm not even enthusiastic about the places uh, i recommend it's like obviously the old port if you like smoked meat go to schwartz because yeah. everyone says it's famous oh, i always recommend like, schwartz and then you go to say for bagels place you know oh, you, yeah. you gotta go and try fairmount bagels or uh, yeah uh, some people swear by saint Viateur. you know yeah, right they're wrong but it's okay <laughs> you know just like some people might like done smoked meat better than schwartz's you know <laughs> everybody's entitled to their opinion you know but I feel these are just kind of boring to me, right? To local, like, I mean, these right. places are just, like, But sometimes whatever. people are like, I went and checked out Schwartz's. It was worth the hype, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Or, like, what? you should go to the Bonkies, get some good poutine, you yeah. know? It's like, oh, before they just had, like, crappy American poutine from some whatever hole in the wall. They're like, oh, I don't like poutine. It's crap. It was like, it's just, like, melted mozzarella or whatever <laughs> on, on soggy fries or something. No wonder they don't like it, you know? But for us, this is just relatively normal stuff. And so, in some ways more interesting things to go and visit when you're going to a place is you really do want to kind of get a bit of the local experience right, mm, right. I, when I go to Spain I, I want to know what Javier Dominguez like likes to go and eat you know what 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 does he do when he's when he's just living there like what you know I don't want to go and oh this is the fanciest restaurant in town all the tourists come here all the time you know it's it's like when I was in Japan and there's one place, oh, it's, it's famous, it's really highly rated on Yelp, and I go there, and it's just, there's not a single Japanese person there, and I just know, you know, like, this is this is catering to tourists. Sure, I it was delicious gyoza, I loved it, but, <laughs> but like, and you know, I went back another time because I'm a fish, but... <laughs> yeah. But still, like, there's, there's something to be said for, like, living that local experience, and the top-rated Yelp restaurants are often not going to be what the local experience is because they're not going to go there. The lines are so long, right? We experienced this. One of the places we used to go and eat became much more, like, famous, right? And then we just stopped going there as much because it just takes forever to get in. <laughs> I think I think Final, Final Nub is going to give us crap if, if we don't mention him because he's always, like, 
he's dying to to for us to to go to Vancouver. Yeah, some... for him for him to give us an all encompassing foodie tour of of the city. Yeah, I mean when I've been to Vancouver, basically, like I've been a couple times not for Magic, but when I've been for Magic, it's just I'm almost always downtown in like the harbor area where it's beautiful. Right. And I always like eat at Miku if I can, and then there's like you know some sandwich place bread and meat or something I don't know that's meat and bread I don't know Mani Davuti brought me there and then he brought me to some incredible Indian place uh, that was had, had a weird name like CJ's or something I don't know, I, I don't know if, if, if if Final Nub is just shaking his head right he's now he's probably shaking his head but anyways I mean I, I like the food in Vancouver especially you know the Asian food which you and I seem to eat a lot because that's what you love right you love you love you love Asian food I don't know, like, outside of just, like, I, I know I'm Chinese. I like Chinese food, but it, I, I don't know if it's a... But you like Japanese, you like yeah, I don't Vietnamese, know you like Korean. I don't know if it's related or... Because not... There's so, like, sushi is not that similar to, like, Chinese food. Oh, it's so different. It's, it's completely different, right? But, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, and I'm also really comfortable with with everything. But I'm, I'm easy with most food. So that's why I'm excited to, to try a Romanian restaurant with you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, we, maybe next time I'll, I'll try and... Because I know one of the places that I would go to was has, has closed down, I think. But there's another somewhat famous place we could we could check out. And obviously, famous is medium famous, but the the there's all all, all kinds of, of good food. Like Mexican food, of course, is great. But I think in Montreal we don't necessarily get it that well compared to like when you go, when I go to California. I just want to slam that over and over again. You know, different places. Like, in London, it's famous for having Indian food. You know, some some people say they're the best Indian food in the world. I, you know, one might think that it's in India, but some of the best chefs might come over to England. There's that kind of the connection there. And it's it's interesting. To, different places are good. Like, I think in Montreal, we have very good Arabic food, actually. Okay, I... Do you, do you I need to... I, no. So have I you have never to, had uh, Bustan, for example? I've had Bustan, but... Uh, I haven't had. Uh, That's kind of like the, the classic thing, though. That that I think you know, kebabs or shawarmas. You know, kebab is everywhere has it, but I think like the the way shawarma is, I haven't discovered that as much on on my travels. To, at least not not the way I have it here. But I haven't and I haven't visited the Middle East myself, so I'll have to try it. It's just I feel here, I've tried every chain restaurant. Are right? we talking about like Bustan, Amir, yeah. Basha, <laughs> all these places? Yeah. So I haven't tried any of these like family-owned whatever style. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, those are usually the the best, right? But the chain places have been successful because they're good. But it's different from some of these major, major American chains like Applebee's or whatever, where you know their brand is just having generic kind of crappy food, but you can sit down with your family and not spend infinite money. I find tra- trends really interesting in terms of how they, like the trends of what what's currently hot. In food, it is interesting to me just to see, like, um, let's say five to ten years ago, that's when Thai Express made its big break. It's get like at the Eaton Center, always long lineups. But from my uncle-in-law, I think he works at a Thai Express. Like, certain locations are, are shutting down or, or they're getting less popular. Uh-huh. And we're cycling through like we're cycling through a period of maybe ramen, like more ramen places were open. And that well, there was a dumpling phase at one point, and then. Now, last year was like the the poke phase, right? So yeah, it's it, interesting how it's the weird, Asian right? Asian thing has been cycling and well, I think it's I'm they, sure it's the case with other types of food too, and it's weird because you'd think that people are gonna like good food, right? And they're gonna have find something they like, and they're usually gonna stick with it 
but there is something to be said about variety. Maybe people are, there's just the latest craze and everybody goes there and oh, it's really good. And then they eat it so much that they get bored of it and they want the next thing. But I think we are still developing as, as cultures merge, right? There's more and more fusion type, type food that is kind of combining. And as, as you want to trick me into talking about high-level magic strategy, some of the best decks are when you take a fusion of different strategies, right? <laughs> I, 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 we, we, near the tail end of the last, last recording, Alex was getting bored. So, <laughs> so I, we have to mix it in. We have to mix it in with some fun talk to get some strategy. Um, so let, let's just try to get it get through as fast as possible. I mean, we were talking about uh, quickly how the Japanese had played land destruction last week. Uh, but now all of them, from from what, scanning the list, they, they turn, swapped to mono red. You swapped to mono red due to like preparing for the for the GP and just going with with a solid deck, uh, right? Yeah, I th- like you know, somebody I th- described it that mono red is like e- always good, and then there's other the the like it's always the second best deck, and then the best deck varies week to week. So it's just kind of a safe choice, especially when you're not sure how quickly the meta's moved, where exactly it is it's at. And there's, again, at this point, there's some metagaming with the MPL deck list of figuring out what other people are playing. Like in your group, you said Model Red was probably pretty good against what you ex- yeah, expected. Yeah, because I know, because I played four of my, my seven opponents, so I have three opponents left. I play two this week, so that gives me a, a reasonable guess of what who I'm playing against and what they're playing. Yeah, you had mentioned it was like, you could, you could play Nas, Nelson. And Shota. Shota, and then. That's it. He, yeah. If he was messing around with with land destruction, you were gonna own him with Gidu Lava Runner. Yeah, you know, good good luck pl- using your field of ruins on my mountains. <laughs> and then with with Matt Nass, he, he might play a dirtily Nexus deck. So so you wanna you just wanna kill him. And yeah. w- what do you think Brad would play? I thought he'd play some kind of mid rangey thing probably, but he could play Nexus. You know, Brad is is kind of one of the least predictable people. I think though, Shoda playing Mono Red is not something I expected. So I I played uh, Sultai Dreadhorde by Jerry T at the uh, MCQ, which was ended up being won by Bank Nest Nexus, piloted by. Wait, you uh, switched Matt to Bank Nexus last minute? No, no, piloted by Matt Stein. I thought you won the MCQ. No, I don't know. Why am I recording with you? I should be recording with Matt Stein. <laughs> no. Um, try the deck. I, I I don't know if this is a factor for you. Uh, before I, I understood the logic of let's say playing a really speedy deck in a long grindy tournament because it actually is beneficial to to have sort of a break i felt like uh i was starting to regret my choice uh in with the salt high deck um well i went two two drop or two three drop after losing to is it phoenix twice but i played two mirrors or two th- or three mid-range mirrors and i just felt like actually mentally exhausted um yeah i mean there's a, that's definitely a huge thing no matter how prepared you are and how you know in prepare like how mentally strong you are it's still going to take a lot more out of you if you play eight rounds and every round goes to time and then right after time you're the last match that finishes and the next round just begins and you're playing these super long intricate games that takes a lot of toll on you i mean i discussed before that one of the reasons i played tron instead of like a deck like amulet where we thought the matchups were like similar is because with tron you just land 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 i've assembled tron here's a car and you're dead and then with amulet you're like okay so now i can get up to five mana and then if i bounce this and i'll have a green floating when i play this and then i can get double blue from this land and transmute the pack for packed with the talera west it's like you have to do that for you have to play 16 rounds you know you're going to lose effectiveness by the end especially in a tournament like the mythic championship where there's three days of competition the third day 
you know, you watch and sometimes people put, play bad. Well, it's because they're exhausted. They've been playing like magic and trying to play at an extremely high level for three days, maybe not that much sleep. It's hard. Like a tournament like an MCQ where it's just one day, it's a little bit different, but it's still, there is some value to, you know, rationing out your 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 mental powers. And, I, it, you know, if, if you've gotten to have lunch because you finished all your rounds quickly with Mono Red, you could go to the bathroom, chat with some friends, have a drink of water, relax, you know, forget about whatever mistake you made in your round too, you know, get that out of your head, clear your mind. There's some value to that for sure, so, which when you play these grindy mid-range decks, you do give up a little bit of that when you're you're kind of always playing. So on that front, I don't want to get to, into your mentality when you were crushing with Sphinx Revelation decks. You, did you feel they, they were mentally taxing? Um, somewhat, but I, I just felt so kind of in the zone and prepared with those decks. It just was my kind of magic, and I really, I was having a lot of fun kind of puzzling out, you know, how do I win this game? How do I prevent my opponent from having any outs? And the thing with those decks is the mid-range battles in some ways are grindier because the control decks with the Sphinx's Revelation deck, when you've re resolved the Sphinx's Revelation for seven or whatever and are discarding the hand size, the game's over. <laughs> you know, sure, you, you have to figure out a little bit how to close out your opponent's last few outs, but pretty much when you've gone to that spot, they can't win anymore. You have three counter spells in hand, you have an Elspeth in play, and they have no cards in their hand and no permanents in play. It's not very hard to win from there. And that's one of the reasons I did like having the Elspeth version rather than the Elixir of Immortality version. Because with the Elixir version, your plan is just to deck them out by keep on reshuffling all your valuable cards in. And that takes a long time, and it's grindy, and it exhausts you. But when you play an Elspeth and you plus it a few times and ultimate and kill them, that's, that's a lot faster and easier, right? So you're saying it's different than, like, the amulet type of mental... Yeah, the amulet deck is, is shorter. Like, the Sphinx's Revelation deck plans to play long games. But I think after turn 7 or something in, the, in, in most matchups, you know, you can kind of go on autopilot a little bit. It's, and you close out the game pretty quickly once you win. Whereas, the, like, the control mirrors are different, where it's kind of, you know, back and forth, and you're trying to jockey for position. But there, also, it's just a little bit instinctive, and the control mirrors don't blink. It, that's the kind of, like, the classic level one thing you learn with control mirrors, that whoever acts first will lose. <laughs> your goal is to play a land every turn, and then for your opponent to cast something, <laughs> and for you to, like, fight over it on their turn and untap and play your whammy, and... You know, in back and then, sometimes it was Aetherling was the, the whammy at times. Uh, sometimes just, you know, resolving an Elspeth was good. They could detention sphere it, but you got three tokens. If you stuck a Jace, you got some card advantage before they killed it, etc. Uh, but if you were the first to act, they could counter spell, and you've committed mana on your own turn, right? So, control mirrors are are, are pretty interesting. I know we, we did a video about uh, control mirror back in the day with the Sphinx of Revelation deck. Oh, yeah, you against uh, Raptor. Yeah. And uh, universally uh, acclaimed, I would say. People, even pros, players of all level, thought it was great. Even though the auto quality, watching it back was really garbage. Yeah, well, I think I was really sick too yeah. at the time. So. Yeah, you were, you were sick. Your nose was running, and it was. I mean, the content was good. Um, so, so back to my tournament. I I expected. Dreadhorde with, with Jim Davis doing well at the SCG, because um, I don't I don't know how much people. You know, watch Twitter when Strasky was hyping the deck, but uh, when Jim Davis did a deck tech on SCG, and it, w it was talked about more, I think it was going to be a more popular choice. It it's like a typical deck that usually gathers a lot of popularity because it's the typical like 
play powerful spells type deck. And, and it looks so sweet, right? I mean, it is sweet, but it also looks sweet, and that that does matter for something. Someone's a deck that looks really boring and like <laughs> is not going to get picked up as quickly as one that looks really cool. You get to play all these flashy new cards, right? Like, I, often people will play the shiny new thing to it mm-hmm. way way more than they should and this has so many new cards in it right to be fair a lot of the decks in war of the spark standard have a lot of war of the spark cards in them uh, mono red being the major exception where probably if you're playing like more than one or two war of the spark cards in your main deck you're making a big mistake <laughs> play four experimental frenzies please please that card is just so absurdly powerful yeah i I remember early on we were talking about this, right? People were playing Chandra. They're like, Alex, do you play? What do you think of yeah. Chandra over Frenzy that some people are doing? And I think, well, I think if you want to win five percent few of your matches, that's what you should do. But because Experimental Frenzy is just busted, so many times your game plan can change from the normal plan of just burn, 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 kill you fast, to trade resources one for one, play a Frenzy where they're up. You maybe you had to lightning strike and shock a creature right so they're up one card but you play your friends and you just draw four effectively draw four cards every turn and overpower them completely yeah i was watching this game where like today on stream huey was on stream trying a demure deck i thought and he, he knew he, he had the game one he had um liliana in play with, with a token i think he even had uh is it called Kefnet? How do you call it? Kefnet, yeah. Yeah, Kef- the blue Kefnet. And and basically killed everything on the other side, but the, the red side ended up having Frenzy into Steamkin. And at one point, Huey said that, oh, he should have contempted the Steamkin because afterwards the guy was able to, the opponent was able to get a Dire Fleet Devil and get, be able to cast with the Steamkin mana. Uh, a Raska's Contempt in Huey's Yard to kill the Liliana, and then from going from like, it looked like you couldn't win, traditionally, just to, to completely winning. Like, he was like, oh, I'm going to lose here. <laughs> yeah, Frenzy does that. That's what it does. It just completely takes over a game. It's 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 a busted magic card. And that's why it, see, it sees some play in, even in Modern even, right? Like, the, oh. the Matt Sperling's second place at the Mythic Championship deck of Affinity played some copies of Experimental Frenzy. It's, you can play a lot of cards off an Experimental Frenzy with your Affinity deck. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. So you're, you you would, you would go to four. Like, yeah. A lot of people are now playing the Juza list, but like replacing, like go up to four, minus one Chandra. Yeah, I I, I played four Frenzy in my list, and that's I think that's should be the standard going forward. I think really that is one of the best things the mono red deck does and it, the fact that it functions as a cheap aggressive deck that can get under people is valuable but also just like you have all these cheap spells which enables frenzy to cast many cards in one turn and i think that's where the real real strength of the deck comes from do you have any thoughts on some of the cute uh, cyber cards people are trying like one mobilized district or these these uh our, fr- our friend Final Nub is trying a lot of funky stuff. Like, like I was telling you, when I was trying to two mono red itself, I, I actually loaded up Gatherer, looked at all the three drops because I didn't love. I loved. I liked War Boss in some cases, but I didn't love it in, in all situations. And he came out with like Mizium Tank, which I had to look up. Um, so yeah, do you have any thoughts on some of this funky stuff? Like Mobilize District one extra man land. I think it it seems fine. You have to have a, a creature land like that in your deck uh, because. You know, your main deck already has a number of red sources to cast Goblin Chain Whirler. So if you're adding an extra land, the reason is to, to cast Chandra and Frenzy and Phoenix or whatever. 
So having a line that gives you colorless for that, and only one, you can usually afford that. And a lot of games, it is going to be better than a mountain, being able to smack them for three. Uh, but I don't really know that the deck necessarily needs another land in the sideboard. A lot of your plan is to just exchange resource until you get to four mana, right? I was telling you the rule with Mono Red, three or four, no more. <laughs> yeah, three or four, that's, no that, more. That's, that's how many lands you kind of want to want to draw. If you have a Frenzy, then you can, you can draw more, but uh, most of your spells are just so cheap, and often you need to trade multiple cards of yours for one of your opponents at times, so it's important to get to... A, a, a card advantage basically through the fact that you have fewer lands than they do. So what's interesting um, about the Dreadhorde deck uh, is that when, when we, I think it was episode two, episode two of Table for Two, where I had talked about how I it was in the early stages of testing it and I got completely obliterated by blue-green blue mass manipulation and I think two two decks that have like a lot, come out with a lot of hype from from the online mcq has been like grew up with immortal sun some people are, are hyped about that and then there's all these blue green variants and mass manipulation is actually gaining some popularity on t online i've seen um someone messaged me on, on discord i think and he was in a queue and he three out of his four last matches were against the blue green mass manipulation there's a, a top online grinder um tangrams or something like that um Final Nub was mentioning him that that had a list that he felt really good about it and he's crushing uh, the cues with it. So I think on that episode I had said that okay if, if people had are gonna play these dredge horde deck they're they, it's tough for them to answer a, a giant mass manipulation especially if you don't uh, traditionally play a lot of removal for the incubation druid like things can get out of hand and, and you thought like right away you thought that had potential. Yeah, I think that's actually around what I would want to be at this week if I was playing a paper tournament. I think online might move too quickly that that deck might not be good right now, but paper moves a bit slower, and I think this might be the weekend for Mass Manipulation to be the deck to play. Stealing people's Planeswalkers, going over the top of a lot of people doing these mid-rangey things, whether it be Esper Hero or Command the Dread Horde, you know, or just, you know, Black Green Land Destruction. Okay, you know, that's fine if you just you can what are they going to kill right and just stealing all their stuff having mana creatures which a lot of these decks aren't playing necessarily that many efficient removal spells for you can you can really push yourself ahead i think nissa is one of the big powerful cards too that i think we talked about before yeah yeah you were high on nissa or, or we both were. yeah it's being able to create lands that turn into creatures and can smack other planeswalkers is very strong Giving, effectively gives you a creature every turn, but also the doubling the mana your forest produce and, and untapping a land can give you a lot of mana the turn after you play Nyssa to be able to mass manipulation their whole board away. It's just So a lot of these decks have been kind of using that as their engine. Crazy. Like Nyssa, if you can somehow have it survive and you Nexus of Fate and, and make a bunch of lands or just like chain Nexus of Fate, just attack, make a dude attack for six, make a dude like attack for nine. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a bit too cute. I think <laughs> Nexus of Fate is not a card that I really want to play in, in those decks. I think, I think Mass Manipulation is where you want to be. It's because it actually does something in games where you just have a bunch of mana but no payoff card. Whereas a lot of the time, you know, you're going to play Nexus of Fate is just going to be like untap your lens, draw a card, and that's all it does. Certainly, you know, the, thing, the games where you already have a Nyssa going kind of, things are usually going fairly well for you. And if not, then 
I don't know if Nexafate is really what you want there, you know? Like, imagine just drawing a bunch of Nexafates in your hand when you're playing against Mono Red. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it just is, you know? It's, it's a card that works in these combo decks because you're able to consistently draw into it every turn. Uh, with the Nissa Nexafate decks, you're planning to stick a Nissa, and you get you do get value from having a Planeswalker in play with right. with that. Trust me, I'm no stranger to having a five mana Planeswalker in play that gets you value while you cast seven mana Time Walks. Okay, uh, I I want a Pro Tour doing that, <laughs> but it's like it's just not as powerful a thing to be doing as you know as, as the the full on Nexus decks that have Tamio plus Nexus and they can just take all the turns. Uh, or, you know, using Nissa to power out a mass manipulation, well, you probably just win the game instead of you cast in an, a Nexus and, oh, now you have two 3-3s three instead. That's, you know, not not quite on the same power level as your opponent board is, is belong to you. Right, right. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm curious to see uh, what the current lists look like. I think they... I feel like they play all of these cards. Like Tamio, Nissa, Nexus... Yeah, mass and trans. And trans- it would be really good if it was the omniscience draft format, and you could just cast spells without having to pay mana for them. <laughs> but the fact is that people are doing things, and you're you know, Nissa costs five mana. Mono red can kill you real fast. They can do twenty damage on turn four. You know, uh, if you're not interacting, and they can interrupt your things. They can kill your Nissa, so on. These these plans, you have to realize that you're not just gold fishing. And I think a lot of people, when they're building their decks, don't realize that. Even I, that's one lesson that I learned kind of in deck building, was I would build these kind of highly synergistic decks. Like, in the Miracle deck, for example, was, you know, jam all these miracles in it. And it's just not effective because other people are trying to play games. And ultimately, I think somewhere in the range of, like, two to four removal spells, even in your highly synergistic decks, is where you want to be. Just so you can have some ways to interact. What do you think... Uh, do you have any... Can you extrapolate, I guess, exp- extrapolate how you feel about, um, let's say, something like the traditional Nexus, like Bant Nexus deck that Brad Nelson helped popularize versus, like, Mass Manipulation, like how that matchup would play out? Who's the more over-the-top deck? I think the Nexus deck is probably a bit over-the-top. Um, the, the, the thing with it is that they can get to a point where they have a Wilderness Reclamation and they, and they don't actually let their opponent interact at all. Uh, the mass manipulation deck can be more tap out, more you know, it's their, your plan is to steal all their permanents, but the next deck isn't about permanence as much as it is about you know cards. You they can set up a board state where they don't actually give you a sorcery speed window to take their Tamio to take their Teferi. They can you know set it up so that they have a wilderness reclamation, and then on in the next turn they play Teferi and play Nexus, and then play Tamio and play Nexus and keep going so you can't actually ever steal their stuff because you just die. Uh, however, post-board, when they get you to bring a bunch more counters, frilled mystics and negates and stuff, that does change the matchup a bit. And if you can take kind of a more of an aggro control route... Uh, I love that. You, you know can, that. <laughs> yeah, I know you love the aggro control. And historically, that's what you want to be if you're facing against combo. Aggro control is the best archetype against combo because you you put them under a clock so they don't have infinite time to set up the perfect hand but you also have disruption so they can't just go for it as, as fast as they can goldfish right which is the problem with aggro versus combo that it's just a race and often combo is designed to be a little bit faster than aggro at times combo just interacts on a different axis than aggro but is slower and those times aggro beats combo 
but and control suffers more usually against combo when when that's the case didn't lsv once write that if there's an aggro control deck in a format it's probably the best deck i feel like he wrote something like that Might i don't not... know if he did but usually it's i think the thing aggro control used to be one of the best archetypes i would play it all the time i loved love it. it i love I think it magic is, i think magic is moving away from that being yeah. good though the reason is aggro control always suffered a bit with actual aggro right like mono blue tempo is kind of the closest aggro control deck that we've had in in recent standards i think uh, you know, it could put pressure on pretty quickly and brace, but also had all these counter spells. Uh, aggro control, typically the interaction they have is with counter spells, though you you could argue some discard ones are are like that too. Uh, but like mon what mono white, which was all threats, would 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 mono blue would struggle against that because your 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 plan with aggro control is to pick apart the key cards of of their deck but when all their cards do kind of the same thing and they're cheaper than your cards right it's easy for them to go under you and to take advantage of the fact that you have these counter spells that have to find a perfect timing to cast and you, you're spending your mana keeping it open for that and they can maybe play around that easier but i think maybe even bigger predator is mid-range i think some some of these mid-range decks Midrange is weak to tempo, which Mono Blue was maybe more like that than pure aggro control. It could shift into aggro control in some matchups, but uh, the midrange decks can really prey on aggro control because they're just a little bit bigger. I think the kind of the basic rule of magic is you usually want to be just a little bit bigger than what your opponent's deck is doing. Mm. And with mid midrange, kind of every deck in magic now feels a little mid midrangey. You know, we've talked about red with frenzy being right so being, good yeah but like frenzy makes it into a bit of a mid-range deck right or chandra like you just protect the queen kind of and then that card gains you enough card advantage over time that you can grind people out which is not what mono red decks of the past would do right when you your your plan was to top deck lightning bolt and throw it at their face and hope they were at three that's what you would do with red before you wouldn't draw a bunch of cards with a frenzy or a chandra but now you have that angle uh, you know, similarly, of course, like there's the the classic mid-range decks like Saltai or Command the Dreadhorde, but even you know, Esper, the Esper control decks have basically all shifted into Esper hero decks, kind of partly because of three mana to fairy preventing counter spells from being that good, but also just the way Magic is is that the Planeswalkers are really powerful, and that's where a huge amount of card advantage comes from. I think what's funny is. Uh... Shout out to, to my sensei, Mike Flores, who, with, with Patrick Chapin, uh, their their experimental mono red list is, like, they cut, I think they cut all the Steamkins, all the Frenzies, and went up to, like, four skewers, four risk factors in the main, so they're trying to play that traditional mono red that you're talking about. Best of luck to them. I mean, I think if you're expecting people to go way over the top of Frenzy, then that's a reasonable approach but i think frenzy is actually really good right now i think mortify stock is relatively low and so and some esper lists just play one in the main exactly that's what i'm saying there's not yeah. that many mortifies around there's a lot more planeswalker hate which is you know before you'd maybe want to be on the planeswalker route against these control decks hey good but, point with immortal sun also yeah. you'd rather have frenzy yeah exactly um I mean, for instance, Gruul with Immortal Sun is a weird spot because Gruul is kind of a mid-range deck. That it's, it's kind of in the aggro mid-range specter. Except, like, 
but it doesn't actually have good removal spells. Its interaction is kind of weak. It has just shock lightning strike without really having the critical mass that mono red has to be able to take out bigger things, to be able to consistently kill stuff. Uh, so you're drawing a bunch of cards with your immortal sons, but they're all threats. You don't really have answers. And when you're drawing a bunch of cards, you want their, them to be answers because that way you can catch up with the, the, the tempo you lost on your, your, your card draw. You t you're spending six mana to cast the Immortal Sun. You know, that's mana you could have spent in impacting the board in a bigger way. Now, when you're shutting off three of your opponent's Planeswalkers, you're impacting the board in a big way. But often, you're just slamming it, giving maybe two of your creatures plus one, plus one that turn, and hoping that your payoff gains you enough over a course of multiple turns. Good, good point on the lack of answers. I, I, w I was testing the Gruel Mirror. Yeah. When they were playing a Ripjaw Raptor, I'm just like, how... How, how do you ever win? Yeah. How am I supposed to kill that thing? Like, I need to draw. I need to have lightning strike and a shock in hand, and then they draw two cards. Also, I, I don't have an efficient just like kill this dude. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Ripjaw Raptor seeing play because against Mono Red, it's a nightmare. And Mono Red, you know, oh, I guess I won't, uh, I'll cast my Goblin Chain Whirler. Well, I'll draw a card. Yeah. Like, dang. You know. <laughs> so it's it can, it can be it can be brutal, uh, and you know Mono Red suffers from that a bit, but because its plan is to go under you enough that it can kill you with, with burn spells. Plus, burn spells are pretty good answers. They can they can throw a bunch of those when they have a frenzy, and it doesn't matter because they're catching up. Okay, let's summarize this and talk. Let's switch it to a fun topic then. Um, what, what are some of the decks that you would play? You would play, you would explore blue-green, mass manipulation, and sure. if, if not, mono red. Yeah, I think mono red's a safe fallback. Uh, I think the, some of the Esper decks look pretty solid to me, too. I think, like... Uh, Martin Mueller? Somewhat like the Martin Mueller decks. I think they're going to be a little bit... They're, they're picking up more popularity online. I'm seeing some pros, you know, talk them up. So that's going to usually lead to more people playing them. And that's definitely something I would I would look that, into. That's going to be underrated on paper. Yeah, it might be underrated on paper. And they're the classic deck that's kind of solid everywhere, you know? Not, no, not really any great matches, but no horrible ones. And if that's kind of your jam, that's maybe what you should aim for. If you're trying to metagame and get more of an edge through the deck you're playing rather than necessarily the plays you make, you know, blue-green could be could be the pick this week. I think a, a mistake I, I've typically made in the past is just, like, searching too hard for a 70% deck when it may not exist. Yeah, they don't design cards in that way yeah. anymore. <laughs> like, you know, it was a time where our, my team would we would meet up two weeks ahead of time, and we'd test the whole format, and we'd find a deck that was great, like Eldrazi, Green White Tokens, and you know, or or even even further back, Esper Dragons, and the you know those decks were I don't know if they were they, we won somewhere it's like seventy percent of our matches. And Soul Artifact, and Soul Artifact was really good too. Yeah, we we won a lot with that. So, but the, the you know now it feels like a lot of the decks are kind of pre-made for for you. You know that. I, War of the Spark has felt a little different, that there's been a mu much more room to explore than normal. But in the past, like, mo you know, here, here's Goblin Jane Whirler. Put this into your mono-red deck. Here's Tempest Shin. You should play a mono-blue deck with that one. You know, Steel, <laughs> Steel Leaf Champion. You should cast that off Lionel Elves on turn two. You know, Banalish Marshal. You should have a bunch of white creatures that are cheap. You know, like, those cards really push you into one direction with deck building. And then some of the multicolored cards would too. Now that we have more mana fixing from Ravnica, it kind of gives you a little bit more options, but there's still things like the Arclight Phoenix deck. Where else is that going to go, right? You know, there's 
those, there's some powerful cards there. Crackling Drake is not a card you can really play in too many decks, right? Even in just the blue-red deck, it's sometimes hard to cast. There have been three-color decks that play it, but um, you kind of get pushed into these directions. Like, Esper Control is just... The, the tools they give it are so good. There's Kaya's Wrath, Thought Erasure, you know, Teferi. How, how are you going to compete with, with those con- cards in, like, another control deck? You know, it's just going to be kind of strictly inferior. So you, you get a bit of guidance from looking at the cards and you see what R&D is tested and what they think is good. And often just jamming a bunch of Mythic Rares into a deck that are the same colors is going to work out reasonably well, especially in the early days before things get really tuned. But it's a lot harder to find R&D mistakes nowadays. And to, that's what you need to get a 70% because they don't want to design sets to give 70%. You, like, it, I just feel like when someone tells me they're testing something has been getting 60 to 65 i'm like I, i'll take that deck i'll i'll play that deck sounds pretty good way more common with me is people telling me they're 28 and 2 with this deck or <laughs> or 19 and 1 or i'm like that's cool you know a lot of people have been telling me that about a bunch of different decks the thing is in magic you're never going to get a large enough sample size you know that's that's why people still ask me for for advice even though they put in their thousand matches because they don't know <laughs> nobody knows it's you have to somehow have built up processes in your mind that you can make shortcuts and you can use small amounts of data to extrapolate right that's something i'm good at because i don't get much data i'm very good at extrapolating (laughs) um this is topic i wanted to talk about about my own experience i don't know how much it relates to you basically i'm i'm you know me i'm a very boring guy boring guy (laughs) introvert and i think most magic we can say probably say that most magic players are and I think th- even though people think like, oh man, I've podcasted for so long, but I don't think that means anything. I, you, you've seen me, I'm still super shy in a lot of situations where I don't know people. Yeah, in the, in the, in the subway when some kid came up to you and said, I'm a really big fan of your podcast. Hey, what's your name, other guy? You know, to me. And uh, it was, you were, you were really shy, you know, until you, you loved it though when you didn't know who I was. You did, you did love that. <laughs> I, I'm really shy, and, and I've had comments like from whether it be colleagues or even my my uh, parents-in-law, who uh, mother and father-in-law, who wish that the person like they randomly sometimes see my Google Hangout when I post it when I'm doing First Strike Live. They see it. They see how talkative I, I am on that show, and and they've actually t- asked my wife like, why isn't he like that with us? Like, why isn't he like the life of the party talking? And it's like it's not. You realize you're just blowing your cover. You're just telling all your listeners that you're actually just putting on a fake persona. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> when I know people, I'm yeah, just super comfortable. Yeah. And uh, no matter what, and I think I just want, another thing I wanted to say was like. When people ask me, like, why I haven't had this guy on the show or that guy, it's honestly, no, I'm not the type to intentionally snub anyone. Um, it's just I have to be comfortable with the person. I, it's like it's usually someone that knows someone. Like, for example, someone I could easily have on the show who's a Canadian is like Dom Harvey, who's dominating uh, who, or was first on the SCG list. Clear candidate for, for an interview, but it's like... Well, it's table for two. There's no room. Table <laughs> for no room. But it's, it's like I don't really know the guy. I don't have friends that, that like, one, one twi- Twitter commenter commented like, how... When I said the hottest risers, I probably named Edgar, uh, Detective Dollywall. I didn't name Dom Harvey. Like, what about this guy? I'm like, well, it's just, I just don't really know him. And, and I started following him, but he doesn't follow me back. And so there's not that 
interaction. So it's still, I'm not really so you're saying that First Strike is just a, a podcast all about nepotism? <laughs> when we, when we <laughs> you had only the, bring your friends on? When we had the A-team, I think a lot of the top guests that we had, it wasn't me asking for them. I was not comfortable. Um, like, maybe even Tom Martell, it wasn't me. Like, we had Owen on, Tom Martell, Who? Cedric. <laughs> Uh, Chapin, we had some of the biggest names uh, that you can think of on the show, and uh, yeah, <laughs> Alex just killed a bug or something. <laughs> yeah, mosquito, mosquitoes aren't getting my blood, and uh, that that's that's where my head's at. I mean, it's I I try, and that's why it's funny. Oh, another yeah, this is the other thing that I wanted to say. That's why it was funny at GP. Calgary, like I'm known as the life of the party, the Canadian, the, the the Canadian network master because I started Manda Private and I started connecting all these good players at the beginning. But it was in large part because the people, the first people I talked to were people that like well, you were one of them that were easy to approach. Vincent Thibault, Dave Kaplan, like super friendly guy. It's not like I had these network powers, but the. the so you're saying I'm hot, but approachable hot. <laughs> approachable hot. <laughs> and, and GP Calgary. I remember I was watching this match, and then I think uh, Pete Ingram was asking Lucas Siao, you know, do you have uh, Pascal Menard's number? And Andre Andre Gerard was next to me. He's like. KYT must have his number and Lucas overhears it. Yeah, yeah. KYT obviously has number. And I'm just like, okay, maybe ended up I actually had his number, but it was so they, like, were right. <laughs> they were right. But it's just like people have this impression that I know everyone, that I'm all connected, which is maybe true, but it wouldn't be the case if all these people weren't super approachable, is my point. Like I'm only as friendly as approachable as like the people uh the closest people allowed me to be and then you know i'm grateful that i had that reputation because the early people p sams everyone they were kyle duncan super friendly guys yeah i mean i feel you there like i'm also an introverted guy which you might not see from from talking but <laughs> on the show especially <laughs> on the show well i get a lot more comfortable with people i know but i think my my the fact that i've been like a magic celebrity has, yeah, that's my has definitely helped me get more accustomed to talking to strangers i still have a bit of social anxiety and stuff so it, it's still i'm i have difficulty coming up and approaching someone and saying hi like when i was back when i was a noob okay <laughs> I, when was that what was that? i i mean you probably you probably only been playing magic for 10 years or something you know <laughs> but, but like you know i was a fan of lsvs or whatever and I, I, I was, like, nervous to go up and get him to sign a card. Now, I'm, you know, I, I troll Luis back just as good as he trolls me. Well, I'd like to think so at least, but it's, it's tough. He's a, a master troll. But it's, you know, and he's just, he's just now a person to me. But back then, he was the celebrity I, I kind of put on a pedestal. I just, a lot of these Magic Pros, i just seen top eight videos because I would, I would watch every Pro Tour top eight, all the videos, and watch how people played and learn from it, you know. Uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from watching great players play. And these kind, they were kind of, you know, I, I, I worked until my idols became my rivals, you know? <laughs> Where does that come from? It comes from something. It's not, it's not an original, but... <laughs> but it was, it was it's, you know, I remember it's like, oh, Paulo wants to team with you. And I'm like, Paulo Vito Damodrosa? Yeah. I've read his articles for years, you know? Now, and now I'm like, oh, I guess, I, I guess... 
I guess I'll work with you for this tournament, Paulo, you know. <laughs> but no, no, I, a, lot, a lot of these people are great and it's fun to get to meet the human being behind it, you know. Sometimes, some of the, some of the pros actually, I don't like their persona as, I'm, as much as I like the real person. Okay. Like, uh, ooh, yeah. I, well, let's, I, hear, let's hear a bang bang. I, I, I don't know if I want to say it because it, you know, it does, it says I like the person, but I, you know, that I don't like the, necessarily the persona. <laughs> So, but these are all people I like for for the most part. You know, there's some people it's the opposite way. I like the persona is a lot nicer than the person, Ooh. and those are the ones where I really can't say because <laughs> that too much dirt. You know, I don't want to be I want to be next next member off the island. Well, well, would you say you're like the the same as me? Like even with the celebrity, you've you've improved. Like me, like I've I'm improved the talking. I'm still who I am. I'm still shy. Yeah, I. I I'm not all of a sudden not shy, but I'm better at it, and I just have been put in situations where I'm interacting with strangers a lot more, that I feel I've gotten better at that stuff. Like, it used to be I would be talking with someone and who I knew, and there'd be like two other guys I didn't know neck, neck near there, and like now I'll be like, hey, I'm, I'm Alex, by the way, you know. I, I won't always say that, but you know, I'm more than the 0% that I would before. There'd be way more of the time, like, Sometimes back then I just wouldn't even know someone's name after talking to them forever. Like John Rowe, formerly John Smithers, I here, here's a little secret. I didn't know his name until he won the GP. And I'm like, oh, it's that guy I've been talking to like <laughs> 10 times, you know. It's like, that, that's who won the GP. And it's kind of embarrassing, but that, you know, that's how it is because there's some of these weird situations where you've talked to someone five times, you're like, it's way too late for me to ask their name. And like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it, it's tough, but I've definitely gotten better at, at that, and I I do find difficult asking, like, people are like, oh, you know these people, like, you just ask them for a deck list, and, like, I just rarely do that. I don't, I don't actually, there's a, there's a few people I talk to a lot, and there's some people I talk to a little bit, and then outside that, there's people I talk to when I encounter them in real life, but I don't really talk online to them at all. So, I know that's still kind of somewhat unusual, a lot of other people are more, much more comfortable talking to people and asking people for things you know i'm not a, not a big one to ask for a lot of favors really I, I uh i mean i i tweet i shamelessly tweeted but like a lot of those people were, were eventually or were my friends like i consider jerry and flores are that i would bug for stuff over the years um one funny thing is i was telling you how like I find it hard, even as like the social media guy for face-to-face -face games, I, I've always found it hard to, um, I'll tweet at LSV, but I've never really be chummy chummy or talk with them. I, I don't go out of my way to, even though my whole thing is I, social media, I need to grow my brand. I, sh I should be talking to some of the biggest stars in the game, but uh, I don't know why. Maybe it's because I feel his, I think you mentioned it to me, like his persona is so big. He's so popular now that it just seems, it seems weird to, like he's like a super celebrity, I feel in the game. Yeah, and and when it comes to Magic, he is a super celebrity. You know, obviously, when it comes to the real world, there's a different thing. Like, I'm very happy with the level of Magic celebrity I have. I don't really want to have real world celebrity. Uh, <laughs> I like the fact that when I'm just walking outside, we're right now we're not being swarmed by paparazzi, being like KYT, KYT. Yeah. What's the latest news on your marriage to Caddy? <laughs> you know, I heard she's angry. You're podcasting with Alex, and like, or. Rather than, you know, the fact that, like, you can walk into a, a, a tournament and then there, you know, you're, that's when it turns on. Your celebrity turns on and people, you know, are asking you to sign their butt cheek or whatever. But 
I, it, you know, I, I've, I've said many times the reason I became a Magic Pro was not to get famous. It was not even for the money. It was, you know, because I loved the game and I wanted to get better at it and I wanted to play against the best and kind of prove myself, you know. The old Pokemon, I want to be the very best like no one ever was. Who's that John Finkel guy? <laughs> that looks like it's starting to rain, so I'm going to try to wrap this up. But I don't know if this story is funny, so I'll judge by your reaction. So this is in the LSV story where... Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. I, can you say no, this? Is, is, is it's this, not, it, not dirt at all. It's, it's not dirt just, at all? Is, is it's it, it's, it's, it's all? kind of funny. Okay. For me. It's, it's, uh, so it happened at PT Montreal. Tom Mortel took it down. But, uh, and at the time, oh I, was, I was still talking semi-regular... To John Sasso, president, uh, well, owner of Channel Fireball at, at the time, I guess. And nice still, guy. I've, I've interacted with him a couple of times. I, I would message him about hockey. He loves the San Jose Sharks. And at the time, everyone was busy for the Pro Tour. And this is when Team Panic, I don't know if you remember the Team Panic at all. Team Panic. Oh, yeah, I remember. Was created by Matthias Hunt. And CFB had their shirts. Um, I don't remember if you guys were wearing Matter Private Face at that time, but CFB had their shirts. Team Panic didn't have their shirts. Their shirts were like, I don't know, they were maybe express mailed by John, um, and they arrived when the PT was starting. So they arrived at the Sheraton, at the hotel. Okay. No one was there to pick them up. So then John tells LSV, who I'd never talked to before, to give me the key to their hotel room to go <laughs> get the shirts for him wow. as a huge favor. Um, so I took the subway probably, went all the way to the Sheraton, opened the hotel room. I could have, I guess, like, <laughs> stolen everything if I could. But I, I, I carried a box of shirts, which were was pretty heavy, actually. I regretted sort of, I mean, I wish I drove or something because it was like a huge, heavy box. So I it was a moment of strength, not a moment of weakness. <laughs> and then I go all the way back and, and gave uh, Matthias Hunt all the shirts. Um, and then I think that GP was also where I held maybe a, a birthday party. I don't remember. But I remember at some point I was freaking out. Oh. Because I'm like, did I close the door <laughs> of LSB's hotel room? And I was panicking, actually. Oh, team panic. In favor. <laughs> and then I, I'm pretty sure, I don't, actually don't remember. It's no longer in my memory. I'm pretty sure at one point I ran back to the hotel <laughs> to make sure it was locked. I bet it was locked, right? When you got it, there, it, was it was locked, locked yeah. But I'm like, oh man, imagine the stories like KYT, scumbag, yeah, yeah, yeah. stole everything and stole 100 grand of cards <laughs> out of Luis's room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, on the other hand, you could be on a beach in the Bahamas right now, <laughs> sipping on a Mai Tai, you know, just having pulled off the greatest magic heist of the century. <laughs> but that was interesting. And uh, yeah, John, John returned, like, told me, like, at the next event where they had a booth that I could. You know, pick pick any card uh, as compensation for his for help. And oh, is that how you got your black lotus? No, no. <laughs> I think he's like, I'll just give you a, a Boros Reckoner, and at that time, a Boros Reckoner was worth a lot. Oh, what's it worth now? Probably nothing. Was it worth, was it worth the, the the fare of your metro to get to get the hotel? <laughs> and the freak out. I was like, holy crap! What if what if it is unlocked? Yeah. <laughs> and stuff gets stolen. So yeah. Just well, interesting. Just an interesting interaction where it's like, I never really talked to him ever again. So, <laughs> yeah, but he probably knows who you are. 
the, the, the three-letter moniker people oh. all, all are all tight. You know, you, LSV, BBD, BDM. There's not other ones that come to mind, but... <laughs> It's PV, PV well, DDR, PV, DDR is yeah. yeah, that's it's a good one. Ma- it's too many, too many letters when it's DDR at the end, though. Oh, Lishi Chan, LST. Mm. True. Actually, one, one last topic. Oh no, is this, After, is this you tricking me again? Yeah, I'm tricking you. Any any uh, <laughs> any extra thoughts on limited after after playing, or is it just the same old same old for you? Like it's just uh, board positioning. Um, I, I wanted to shadow Ari Lax just because I think over the past couple of years he's been someone he doesn't produce that much free content he's been blogging more uh recently but i feel like he's someone that i actually want to read uh even after he does like those typical lazy scg articles or channel fireball articles that just go over decks that did well and they just write like it's like your 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 joke from last episode top five things mall drifter can do i think he actually tries to extrapolate info and guess where the metagame is heading and I like that and then he has when he tweets about certain cards he always has strong takes like I think Living Twister has potential or um, like very specific strong takes and I really like that about him and then he's recently really written a blog, blog about War uh, Limited and, and he you know he hates it he thinks it's like not as skill intensive as a Guild of Ravnica and he mentioned some of the stuff you, you mentioned like um, that you know, your goal against some placewalkers is you want to make sure they don't have that second activation. You won't have a board presence. Uh, yeah. And he also mentioned one of his tips was to, you know, jam, take advantage of certain of your bomb cards, like a card that I think should be your favorite in the set, Mo, loyal companion. Yeah, he's a good boy. <laughs> but, I mean, Ari is a good writer. He goes, and I do think he goes above and beyond, you know, from last week's conversation about content creation. So he wasn't the ones that, he wasn't one of the ones you were shitting on. No, he, just, he, he hasn't phoned it in. I think the people who phoned it in for a paycheck shouldn't get credited with community contributions. Like Jerry, you know, your, your, your boy, our boy, I should say, uh, responded to our, our podcast. And he's, you know, he said that someone like Paulo, rightfully so, would, you know, would not, not write articles if he wasn't paid. And I agree with that. But he also does pour himself into it and he does put much more into his articles than he really needs to necessarily just to get that paycheck so I think the community is a lot better at magic because Paula writes these articles and Agreed. so I, I think that is a community contribution whereas you know somebody who's gets the gets a deck list because somebody wrote an article I don't know if the, the community is actually richer for it so back back to the limited, like you you and Ari are I, I imagine on the same page as to uh, in some ways. I mean, I I guess I disagree with him on ultimately on on the skill testingness of the format. I think there are some rares that are extremely powerful and hard to beat at times. Um, the gods, some of the gods feel really unbeatable. The white god Kefnet feels pretty unbeatable at times too. Uh, but I think the planeswalkers are kind of all answerable, even though they're very powerful. Like, you know, I found I, I think I remarked that basically every time someone had an Ugin, they would throw the draft. <laughs> but there are ways to answer them, and there are ways to buy them back. But I think that if you 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 should be designing your decks with a plan for someone who has a god or a powerful planeswalker, and if you don't have that, then you are going to usually lose to them. And I think sometimes that means, like, being extra conservative with your lines, like taking an extra hit from a creature so you can kill it end of turn, so that you can hold up no escape. Um, 
you know, just as an example, so that they can't land a god on you, or, a, or let's say, an Ajani, whatever. Um, making making some lines like that, playing something like you know, no escaping your deck, or toll, playing toll, uh, toll of eternity, is it called? I think. Anyway, the the coercion effect in your in your main deck, you know, and maybe playing a Kazmina's transmutation, playing. Playing stuff that gives you a plan to beat these these rares because there's a good time that people will have them, but you don't want cards that only beat those. You want them to still be somewhat flexible. So there's a balance there. Um, I mean, I, I had a horrible, horrible seal deck, and I still won more than half my matches at the GP. And I think that there's a lot you can do there, especially in best of three with sideboarding. You can maneuver your deck. You, know, you can take out your two drops if your opponent's really slow and, and bring in more six and sevens, let's say, or you can go even lower curve, you know, if your opponent's way too slow and clunky and you try and beat them down fast. One thing I, I boarded in a lot against opponents with a high amount of removal, I br- brought in Kiora and a couple of the five, three hex proofs for five. <laughs> and I would just slam, turn three Kiora, turn four, untap a land, play a five, three hex proof draw card, and then just attack them with that a bunch. <laughs> and, you know, what would they do? They have like a bunch of planeswalkers removal. Well, that doesn't actually answer my five three. So just some outside the box thinking is always valuable and limited, I think. And some cards, you know, I, I want to find one copy of for my deck so that I can have some way to potentially answer these things. Mm, good thoughts. I, I wanna yeah, anyone who wants to get some Ice quick. cream? KYT is giving a free ice cream to one lucky listener. Yeah. <laughs> some more limited content. You can follow uh, Ari Lax on Twitter and check out his blog. He, one of, like, he condensed it into five key points, five takeaways. Um, sounds like a, a clickbaity title, but it's not. It's like it's, it's pretty good content. And one of like the fifth thing he said, it's like he wants in draft, he wants to stay. I think he wanted, he said he wanted to stay monocolored as possible to be like really flexible in I guess getting a bomb of the second color instead of you know being stuck in two I take I, I instead take things of various colors I just take powerful cards so I can move into whatever color ends up being open and I take fixing so I can splash more readily that's m- more my approach um, I think if you stay monocolor you know that color could dry up and often the most powerful cards are multicolored cards so let's say you're mono red and then you get open an enter the god eternals well, what are you going to do? You, you, you're going to be, you, you need to be blue, red, and splash black, right? Whereas if you're, you have a bunch of cards, you have some good red cards, some blue cards, you can t- take that and then, you know, decide that you maybe don't want to play red or you're going to splash black. Like, you already have kind of a foundation. I, I In general, in, in draft in the last, last while, I've liked kind of staying open with powerful cards in the first pack and kind of committing just a little bit after everybody else is committed right that's if you can commit you just want to be a little bit bigger yeah exactly just a little bit bigger i mean it's it's a it's like an arms race right or a red queen race you always want you're fighting against other humans right you don't want to just find something in a vacuum that's a rule and follow that rule what you want to do is you want to just get be one step ahead of everybody else one level ahead right it's just like the, the poker levels you talked about. You know, everybody's on level zero, you want to be level one. If everybody's level one, you want to be level two. Well, if everybody's level two, you want to be level zero because then you're beating them. And so, but if you're too many levels ahead, right, then you just get back to being level zero and everybody's level one and you get beaten. Similarly, you know, if you commit way too late, 
you get screwed because you you know you've you just like have cards of way too many colors and you don't actually get that much payoff if you commit too early you can get cut off by someone else later but if you commit just after everybody else is committed they've already made their decision so all the like if they open a liliana and they're not black they'll pass it to you and then hey it's time to commit to black now right that's that's how i i feel like ideally the pick after they commit they take that card they're now i'm locked into this color that's when you can move into the colors they're not but it never works that perfectly sometimes but ideally you want to commit a little bit later than other people do and i think the more amateur drafters tend to commit earlier like people get married to their first pick they open a pack they take their card that they want to take and then second pick there's another card that's really strong but one that's a bit weaker but it's in the same color as their card a huge percentage of the time people take the, the slightly weaker card now that's often correct because you do want to have multiple cards of the same color increase the chance you play them but when you're so when you factor the weaker strength of that card but the increased chance you play it versus the other card which is more powerful but less of a chance you play it the, the equation could work out that the weaker card's more valuable but there are times where people like will first pick a red rare for example let's say chandra and then they're not picking between like enter the god eternals and jaya's like jaya's um what's it I've been playing too much Dominaria, so I want to say Inferno, but it's not that one. It's the it's three damage scry one. Okay. You know that's that's like you should probably take the rare there. It's, it, the power level's so much higher. But you know if the, if the pick is between that and like burning instead of the removal spell, it's against like burning emissary or whatever. Burning emissary. See, I'm I'm screaming all the burning profit. <laughs> I, I'm, I've drafted too much Dominaria now in the last last couple of days. Burning profit. That one, that the power level of that is significantly, significantly lower. That you shouldn't even be considering taking that, even after first picking a Chandra, than a powerful card that's not in this colors. It's my opinion, and but people often will. They'll just and then you the the thing is a lot of the, back in the day, a lot of the commons used to be really weak, so you would end up really scrounging for like twenty through twenty third playables. Now the cards are a lot more powerful, so the the downside of having like some weaker cards in your deck is not that high you know whereas if you just force a lane you'll end up with like 28 cards that are, and the last like 10 are all fine but not great whereas if you like wait longer you have more high power cards and maybe your filler cards are a little worse but it's all about the, the top end cards rather than the filler is is how magic is now you know the enter the god eternals is a card that just trades for so many filler cards that it's just irreplaceable whereas a burning profit is an excellent two drop but if you don't have that and you have something not quite as good instead you, it's not going to be quite as big of an effect on your deck as the other way around so all right all right let's let's get out of here it's raining it out. yeah it's gonna it's gonna rain soon and uh and you have a little bit of a, a you know a, a jacket kind of thing <laughs> you can that you can use to cover me from the rain but you might get really wet so <laughs> Actual oh. video footage from a previous episode of KYT wiping down oh, no. the seat of a, of, a, of a picnic table to to get it dry for me, not for himself, with his jacket. I can't believe he actually did that. <laughs> it was great. All right, until next time, listen to Alex and make sure that you're just a little bit bigger. Yeah, you, whatever your opponent's doing, you know, if everybody's preparing 10 hours, you want to prepare 11. <laughs> yeah. You know, if they're playing three threes, you want to be playing four fours. And if they're deciding to lock into the colors after pack one, you want to do it two picks into pack two. All right? Just go a little bit bigger.